That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Today's episode is a podcast about a podcast, but I really think you're going to enjoy it. I talked to the host and producer of the latest 30 for 30 podcast, Jules Lowry Henderson, doing a deep dive into the complicated world of Bikram yoga and the controversies surrounding its founder, Bikram Chowdhury. It was especially interesting for me as someone who has a friend who works at a studio, and you might have heard on this podcast even my conversation with a studio owner who focuses on Bikram yoga and who spent his time learning and training from Bikram Chowdhury himself. Uh, and if you don't know the story and the kind of complicated twists in terms of how this man who grew up in Calcutta moved to Hollywood, used his connections with celebrities like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Quincy Jones, Shirley MacLaine to build this sort of almost cult-like support uh, in, in a positive way at first for Bikram yoga and what it could do to heal and and help the body to train and sculpt, to lose body fat and ma- make your body look better, but at the same time uh, heal the injuries of athletes. And otherwise, there, it was an all-purpose way of bringing people together. And he was a massive hit. He made millions of dollars. He drove fancy cars. And then it all started to fall apart, he accused of sexually assaulting several of his followers and staff, verbally harassing students, failing to pay business partners, and... He's helped thousands and thousands of people with this yoga and hurt and destroyed thousands of others. Uh, and the podcast gets into detail with several of the women who claim to have been sexually abused by him. Talks about how he's currently on the lam and he's avoiding this massive payment that he's owed and why they can't just go find him and arrest him. It's a fascinating listen. The podcast is incredible. And my conversation with Jules is interesting too, digging into how her conversations with Bikram went, what she saw in his eyes when she tried to draw out of him the truth. And what she, as a former longtime practitioner of Bikram Yoga, felt about sort of turning against the world that she knew and whether she felt at all guilty about trying to help expose something that at one time was such a large part of her life. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. It's coming up next. That's what she said. Happy to welcome in Jules Lowry Henderson. She does a deep dive into the very complicated world of Bikram yoga for the latest 30 for 30 podcast. It's in several parts and, uh, I encourage you to go listen to it. This is uh, the classic 30 for 30 storytelling uh, in a slightly different mode with, with it being an audio, uh, audio feature, but, um, five parts that all go into, uh, maybe if, if you're not, you're not already introduced to Bikram, uh, but, uh, first introducing you and then the twists and turns of his life and the lives of his students, uh, that have led up to him ultimately now being on the lam and, uh, a, a worn out for his arrest and many left wondering whether they can, uh, sort of separate the practice from the person and the perfect person to sort of tell us about this podcast and the journey that she went on in trying to discover the same for herself is Jules. Uh, and I want to start with your background and what sort of led you to doing this project. Uh, when you grew up, were you, uh, were you always interested in journalism? No, I was actually, I mean, I was a storyteller first and foremost. Um, you know, I, I went to school for theater. I got a BFA in theater and I moved to New York and 
I did a lot of writing and a lot of work in collaborative and original works, and it was kind of a a slow process uh, by which I realized that you know my my passion was really stories based on reality and documentary, and that was how I ended up um, as a journalist working in the audio realm. And kind of while I was in New York making that sort of slow transition, I also was doing Bikram yoga a lot. I was one of those people that practiced, you know, every single day for about seven years. Wow. And for about three years, I ended up managing the studio I practiced at. So I was very involved and deeply into this form of yoga for a really long time. To practice every day for seven years, um, did you ever consider becoming a teacher or getting your teacher training? Absolutely. I, for a long time, I just always assumed I would. You know, there's not a lot of other options uh, for progression in the Bikram world, you know, partially because it's just the one beginning series. You know, there's no, you know, second series you can do. There's no intermediate class you can take. You know, it's really the one option and you can become a teacher or then after that you could own a studio. And those are kind of really the only two career paths in that world. Um, And so I did really want to be a teacher and assumed I would be a teacher. You know, circumstances ended up being that the reason I got hired to manage the studio was so that the studio owner could have a baby. And so I managed it and took care of the studio, you know, through her maternity leave. And then for a couple of years, it was very much about her and I kind of juggling the studio and her daughter. And so in that kind of you know, first two years of life of her child, the thought of, you know, shipping me off for nine weeks so I could be certified didn't make sense logistically for us. Um, and then by the time, you know, she was old enough that potentially that could work, I was about to move to California and I also started to get a little nervous. I mean, managing a studio, I sort of had a, I had a clearer look at the business side of it than a lot of people did. And I was starting to, you know, have some reservations about how much it was going to cost to actually go become a teacher. And then the potential or I guess lack of potential for making that money back on the flip side. So I never ended up going, but for a few years of my life, I absolutely assumed that I would. What got you started in it? Was it exercise? Was it meditation? Was it the eventual idea of, of making it a career? It was largely exercise. Um, It was recommended to me by friends. You know, I had gone to uh, a BFA, you know, conservatory program. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of my college time had been, you know, working on myself physically. And being an adult or a young adult in New York, uh, I was a little bit lost without that. Uh, And I was really in a place that I was looking for something, you know, I knew I couldn't, you know, be taking dance classes and movement classes and getting in touch with my body like all day, every day anymore. But I needed something that would sort of scratch that itch and feel like I was doing exercise and taking care of myself. And so this was recommended to me by a friend who knows me well, who had done it. And I just sort of, I mean, I thought I was going to die during my first class, but I also (laughs) took to it immediately. 
Yeah, I thought I was going to die during my first Bikram as well. I think that's the goal, right? You you just said, <laughs> but once you get through to the other side, you're like, I did it. Okay, now I got to try again because I want to see exactly. if I feel like I'm going to die the second time. Um, so, so ultimately though, you had other career goals and then also the intimate knowledge of managing made it feel like maybe this isn't uh, a surefire business plan. So you move out to California to do what? Uh, I went with my partner. He was starting his master's you know, in music out at Mills in Oakland. And so, you know, we moved out there for two years. Um, and that was sort of the period of my life where, you know, I removed myself from my creative nest and the people I tended to work with. And I was forced to examine the type of storytelling I wanted to do and to start really making inroads into doing that type of storytelling. Um, and, you know, part of that ended up being inadvertently letting go of my Bikram connections and practice you know i i just didn't i got out there and i did not take to the studio that was near me and i mean i was so sort of addicted and in it at that point that it probably took me almost you know a year to allow myself to you know practice less and less frequently until it wasn't you know a centerpiece of my life anymore but yeah california sort of broke me broke my bikram connection so how long was it before or was it concurrent when you when there started to be rumors about Bikram himself uh, infiltrating the world of, of yoga studios? I imagine that's where it began before it became more more commonly known. This happened right before uh, allegations broke. Um, you know, having never gone to training, what I sort of learned in reporting this out was that there was a kind of, there was a level right i mean the bikram world or the bikram community is a really large one you know with hundreds and hundreds of studios around the world and hundreds of thousands if not you know a million plus people practicing there are a lot of people who just show up at their local studio come for you know the teachers that they like or just for the exercise you know spend their 90 minutes shower go on with their lives and that's as sort of connected to it as they get and really, it's not until you kind of move up the the pyramid of that community and you go to training and you get involved on the other side that any sort of rumors percolate. But inside that piece of the community that had been through training and that had had gotten, you know, gotten that deep in it, you know, there were rumors for a really long time that, you know, it feels in some cases like it was almost an open secret that he was he was problematic and that there were things going on between him and students that were inappropriate. Um, you know, I talked to victims in the series who long before allegations came out, uh, you know, found themselves in uncomfortable positions with him and, and went to senior teachers in charge of their training and reported these incidents and were told, you know, not, it wasn't like they were shocked or surprised to hear this. It was, they knew that this sort of allegation was coming. They just asked these young women to not be alone with him anymore and not let other young women be alone with him. Um, so, you know, it was, I think it was very much a surprise to the broader community, but the further you got up in it, for sure, there were a lot of rumors and fears circulating before 2013 came along and the first woman came forward with public allegations. So when you 
decided to to I, I presume that you were not already working with ESPN. You reached out to ESPN regarding this particular topic for Thirty for Thirty podcast and said, "This is what this is what I'd like to focus on." It was the very first thing I pitched when I came over here to be part of the team that launched Thirty for Thirty podcast. Okay, so you were a part of the original um, team. And they yeah. said, all right, this is this is the product we're putting together. Who has an idea for a series? Yes. So we – and originally, you know, we naively greenlit this thinking, we can do this in an episode or maybe we'll make it a two-parter. And then, <laughs> you know, very quickly realized that that wasn't realistic and that this – in order to tell this correctly, you know, we needed to – we needed to give this a lot more space. Um, but yeah, it was like the first idea I came in with when we when we started this in fall of 2016. So it's obviously been years for you since you were invested on a day to day basis with the Bikram community. But there are plenty of people, even despite the allegations, that still feel a certain loyalty to Bikram and support him and the practice. And there are others within the practice who want to continue the what they call the 26 and 2 poses or the traditional hot yoga series, which is what a lot of current practitioners use to separate themselves from the Bikram name. Um, was there any part of you in pitching this that thought that you were violating something that at one point was really meaningful to you? Or was it, I want everybody else who, who holds this close to their hearts to have um, an, an accurate look at what exactly they're a part of? I think... Both things are true. I definitely, you know, I, because of my involvement and my one time, you know, deep affinity for this series and, and, you know, even though I didn't practice, I still knew what it had done for me and believed in what it had done for me and knew what it had done for a lot of people. So I definitely came to this on the heels of having, you know, seen allegations in the news, having seen some really sensationalized coverage of what had happened, and understanding that this was really much more complicated and difficult all around than, you know, we had, the general public had had a chance to hear or see so far. Um, You know, ironically, we started this, you know, a year before Me Too happened, but I think when we said yes to doing this and we, you know, I laid out why I thought it was important to do this, you know, we had this understanding that communities grappling with, you know, open secrets and, you know, giving women a safe space and respecting women and dealing with assault and how kind of just complicated and terrible we are with, you know, dealing with assault. You know, we knew that, the the bigger we could make this and the more we could help people understand why people had believed so firmly in this thing and to really i guess give some credence to the to the difficult decision that everyone who's benefited from this yoga who still wants to do this yoga you know that they're left with um that could fill in those shades of gray that this would be you know, a really compelling and challenging story. So let's get to why people are so connected to it. Um, for, mm-hmm. for those who aren't yoga practitioners, they probably think of still, you know, just ohms and, and 
pretzels and and you know uh, and then and mats and you know the the old standards um but this is a very specific and particular type of yoga it never changes although you change the longer that you do it um let's start with sort of a basic idea of who Bikram was and what he became not only originally to Hollywood power players but to thousands of people who ended up adopting his practice yeah so You know, Bikram was born and raised in Calcutta. He came to America in the early 70s, and he started, he brought with him a yoga that didn't really look anything like what people thought of as yoga. At that point, yoga was largely uh, what you call Kriya yoga or spiritual yoga, you know, the Beatles and Transcendental Meditation or Yogananda, um, any sort of physical yoga that was done was by, by and large very gentle and very, you know, ohm and pretzely. And in walks, you know, this, you know, 20 something man in a black speedo with a ton of energy and charisma who has a class of 26 postures and two breathing exercises that he teaches in a heated room. And it is not spiritual. It is called a moving meditation, but it is hard. And part of, you know, part of the objective of it is that it's hard. You know, you are, you know, it is meant to make you suffer. It is meant to make you exert yourself. Uh, The benefits you get come from that exertion and from surviving, you know, not only the conditions of the room, but also, you know, surviving him. He's a hard teacher and he always was. And the room being Uh, 105 degrees. Um, so it was, and it was, you know, he marketed it in a way as an exercise tool and as a weight loss tool. I mean, as a yoga teacher, he talked to his students about their weight and he emphasized how this could help you lose weight. And this is something that just, you know, wasn't a part of what we thought of as yoga or what we expected from a yoga teacher. And it was incredibly popular. At first it was popular with his, you know, students in the seventies in Beverly Hills who were by and large, you know, celebrities, Raquel Welch, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Quincy Jones, Jeff Bridges, Shirley MacLaine was, you know, his first student, one of his dearest friends and really helped him get off the ground. And then he, you know, he weathered it and stayed there as a mainstay in the Beverly Hills scene. And when yoga really blew up in this country starting in the 90s, he was kind of perfectly poised. Then a much larger population got a glimpse of this thing that celebrities had loved and used to get themselves in shape. And, you know, the general population fell in love with this really intense, yoga practice that was very much physical exercise and could be used as exercise, as weight loss. You know, you mentioned the big boom. So 94, there were 6 million people doing yoga in the U.S. and then 2004, it had tripled. And I remember, Mm -hmm. you know, when I, even when I was in, when I was in college, we certainly didn't use yoga as an additive to our, I was a track and field runner. We didn't use it as an additive. Now you hear all about, you know, different teams using yoga for its healing practices and stretching and, and everything else. Um, and, and even coming out of, of, um, college, I, I went to a yoga class or two and I was so bored. I felt like having been a division one athlete, I wanted a workout. I didn't want to lay around. And so you're right that this certainly appealed to people in a way. This is a very different yoga from what 
first hit the market as as very meditative and um and especially for him to target people in Los Angeles, right? And part of what drew them in was this idea that they were these coddled stars and they finally had someone that was telling them like it was, telling it like it was and, and holding them to a standard uh, that was very difficult to achieve. So it felt like a, a work. It felt like an accomplishment. Exactly. He was, you know, he was, there's like a false honesty equated with that style of being, especially for celebrities. You know, they're surrounded by people that are there to enable their lives and help them get where they're supposed to be and keep their egos, you know, feeling good. And, and you know, it, it's very much a bubble. And he felt like he was, you know, breaking through the bubble. And that breaking through the bubble, you know, was equated with truth or with honesty in their eyes. You know, he always, he strikes me too, he's very much like he's... He's a coach in many ways. You know, we tend to look at, we we idolize or gravitate towards coaches, us, who to the point of sometimes, you know, there are coaches who abuse that position and, you know, abuse their athletes. Uh, you know, that no pain, no gain, sort of, it has to, it has to hurt to be good, tough love coaching that we we tend to idolize in all sorts of areas of sports. You know, he came in with that in yoga and we, you know, the American population in the world ended up eating it up. Yeah. That was a big part of it too, was this sort of charm that he had as both a sort of taskmaster, but also was charming enough that you wanted to earn his, uh, his approval. Interestingly, when he came from Calcutta and first arrived and he was working with celebrities, Shirley McLean said to him, stop, giving away your classes for free, stop asking people to perhaps donate on their way out, start charging. And it it kind of opened up him to the idea of fame and fortune. And he, he bought in hard to the point where he was then driving around in Rolls Royces and gold chains. And, you know, I actually had a, a yoga, um, yoga studio owner on and I asked him, when you went to go do the training, did it turn you off at all that this person that was teaching something that we associate with stripping down to what matters and, and, and connecting with our bodies and our lives in a, in a, in a way that isn't about materialism was, was carrying on a lifestyle that whether that's fair or not is not what we associate with yoga. Um, and he said it, it, it affected him, but not in a deep and meaningful way. I'm curious whether that felt to people disingenuous as opposed to feeling like this is a genuine Indian man from Calcutta coming to show us the way. It's interesting. You know, there were, a lot of people for whom it felt completely disingenuous. And most of those people fall in either, you know, the mainstream population that wasn't doing yoga at all, or people that were really bought into other schools of yoga. I mean, Bikram yoga was always very separate uh, from the rest of the yoga community and world. Um, you know, Bikram doesn't play nice with anyone. You know, he wasn't part of the yoga alliance. He just, you know, he did his own thing and because of that there wasn't a lot of cooperation or collaboration between the world of Bikram and other worlds of yoga in this country so a lot of those people did look at him and pointed repeatedly at the way he was trying to copyright the Rolexes the mansion the Rolls Royces and you know screaming foul that this is this is greed this is not what yoga is about this guy is all ego this is this isn't right and, you know, I, I can remember that from the other side, from, you know, being so into Bikram at that point 
And and then from reporting this and talking to people, you know, I think what that did, it had the effect of causing his students to actually rally around him Hmm. and defend him harder, you know, because it felt unfair. There's a way of looking at it where it feels like, hey, it's not it's not fair to expect him to not benefit or, you know, financially or otherwise from this thing that he's devised and that he's given the world. You know, that is the American way. Why, you know, Gaia, whoever owns the company Gaia is getting rich off yoga mats. And, you know, you know, why can he not have it? And he kind of then got protected in this, you know, very defensive circle of people who were, you know, not, did not want to hear anyone calling him greedy or, you know, getting on him because he didn't look or act like we thought of a typical yoga guru. But he continued because most of his power came from this idea that he was authentic, that he came from Calcutta and he told us all that he had practiced yoga his whole life, that he was a prodigy at this. And that gave him an incredible amount of authenticity in the eyes of people who believed him. And that's where he got all of his power. So he was able to like have his cake and eat it too. He was able to have both sides of those things inside of his community. He could be as greedy and capitalistic as he wanted, but he also had complete authenticity just by virtue of the fact that he had come directly from Calcutta. So he ends up going back and finding a very young woman who was a yoga master in her own right to marry him and continue to establish that authenticity through that. The celebrities are spreading the word about his practices. There's studios opening up in his name and in his uh, in his uh, direction. And there's a book written to help people practice, even if they can't be right there with him. Everything's going very swimmingly for him. Um, but mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, throughout this, there are whispers. And just like any institution, there are many who will fight to protect that institution, whether it's because it affords them a job or money or prestige or power or because their defense of something that they love somehow becomes overwhelming, even in the face of a moral uh, moral quandary. Um, that happens in church, in military, in college football, um, and yoga is no different than that. So as the rumors began, uh, this was actually when a good friend of mine, who's now a teacher, went to the teacher training. It's nine weeks. He is there. If you are a Bikram studio, it has to be that you learned from Bikram. Now, uh, there's been some slight changes where you can be approved for the 26 and 2 poses or the original hot yoga without having to go to Bikram for it as the practice tries to separate itself from the man. But she was there. She was up at front for movie night. Is about 430 people watching a movie. Um, she said she was kind of a goody two-shoes. It was in the first two weeks of the nine weeks. So she was sitting directly in front where he sat in almost a throne-like chair. And there was a female staff member next to him. And she was manually pleasuring him under a blanket while dozens of people could see. It wasn't really hidden. It wasn't really overt. And she thought to herself, what What exactly am I doing here? And she had been warned by her two studio heads, uh, go learn, make friends, you know, become a teacher, um, but just be a little bit wary. And this was 2011 before the rumors were public. Um, and she never felt weird or threatened, but she was very aware not to go to his room, very aware to learn without getting too close to him. Um, I would imagine there are so many stories just like that coming from any number of people who went to these giant trainings, 400 plus people, where there didn't seem to even be an effort to, to completely cover up his actions. Yeah, it's, um, 
you know, in talking to people and reporting this, it's you it's it's very common to talk to, you know, someone and have them all of a sudden, you know, look back and see him sitting in that chair and see, you know, the orange blanket and, you know, look back at the situation and see so clearly what was happening and then have to grapple with how in the moment they completely just blocked it, that Mm. they just, you know, looked the other way or didn't allow themselves to believe what they were seeing or, you know, and I think part of that was deeply enabled by exactly what, you know, you touched on, that there was this advice that was given over and over over the years to anyone who went to teacher training um, who came from, you know, had the benefit of coming from a studio or, you know, the support of teachers who were honest enough to tell them, you know, just get what you can from it. Take what you can. You don't have to, you know, believe everything he says. He's going to push your buttons. You know, keep your distance. Just keep your head down. You know, don't get him angry at you. Like, don't don't rock the boat, just like get in, get your training and get out. And then you don't have to be around him anymore. Um, You know, this advice to not be alone with him was given to a lot of young women before they went. Um, You know, it was the sort of, that's just Bikram. That's just how he is was so it was, you know, it was an accepted belief system and that, that belief system existing, you know, ended up allowing a lot of stuff to happen pretty brazenly, but without anyone really acknowledging it in the moment. You know, he's also dealing with, you know, two to 400 people who are sleep deprived and worn down physically and mentally from the training and who are just trying to survive. And at some point, you know, it's, he tends to really amp up the antics after the halfway point, you know, he, from, you know, most of my reporting, you know, it seems like the first couple of weeks of training, he is more so on his best behavior and it, it kind of degrades as the training goes on, which I don't think is accidental. I think he understands that, you know, he's got 400 people who have spent an incredible sum of money, you know, $10,000 and up to be there with him and learn from him. And, you know, if they've put in five or six weeks of the nine weeks, it's very easy to put your head down and just do what you have to do to get through the last three so you don't, you know, lose that money and lose this opportunity. And all of those factors seem to have enabled this type of behavior to go on for a really long time. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Yeah, it's a combination, as, as as we talked about already, protecting an institution, but also he was in a position of power, wherein if you wanted to practice and teach this, you had to go to him, right? So even if you mm-hmm. had heard the rumors about him and it wasn't a person that you wanted to support, your only means of moving forward in your practice, if you did want to become a teacher or a studio owner or whatever, was to actually go and support this man. And it sounds like so many other industries, when someone achieves a certain uh, a certain level of power or prestige, the people around them spreading rumors or telling everybody what kind of person they're, it just becomes accepted. Oh, well, that's just how he is. And it feels like you mentioned the Me Too movement earlier. There has been a, a fairly serious shift in how we view people with those rumors surrounding them. Instead of just accepting it, there's a, wait a minute, why have we always accepted this? 
but it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily result in a change in how they're dealt with, right? We've seen a very few number of the men who have been publicly accused and have been proved to be guilty actually have much in the way of punishment beyond losing their job. In fact, some of them are already trying to make their way back onto television. Um, jail yep. time and, 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 and stripped of their riches and their fame doesn't seem to happen to many people, which is how we end up with this, where Bikram now actually has a warrant out for his arrest and is, uh, fleeing the United States because he's not actually allowed to train or teach in the United States anymore, but he's still out freely training. Everyone knows where he is two times a year for nine weeks in Mexico and no one's gone to stop him or arrest him. Let's let's get to that part when when the accusations start into how we get to here where it it still feels like he's being propped up. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately for his victims, you know, they came forward in 2013. They began coming forward, and at that point, you know, there was no cultural movement or cultural awareness uh, to you know, not only support the victims, but also give the community some sort of template or any sort of backing in in dealing with this correctly. And, you know, the LAPD and the L.A. District Attorney never pressed any charges against him. Um, You know, he's a powerful... Have they said why? No. um, I mean, they both declined to comment on the record or to do interviews. Uh, you know, I do know about a lot of their the police communication with uh, one of the the biggest advocates for the victims. Um, you know, she shared a lot with me in terms of the back and forth on the phone and the emails that she had with the LAPD. You know, sadly, I think it just comes down to the fact that Bikram, he's powerful, he's litigious. I mean, he has sued everyone under the sun repeatedly. He has friends in all sorts of places. And in general, you know, this is not, maybe this will change, but, you know, that would be the best thing that could come of Me Too in many ways is if this changes. But, you know, it's exactly like Jonathan Krakauer detailed in Missoula. You know, we're not, you know, legally as a country, we are not good with dealing with sexual assault and rape. We're not good at believing victims. We are not good at advocating for victims. We're just, we really fall far short of doing the right thing in these cases. And there were no criminal charges that were ever filed. So the women were forced to pursue the other option available to them, which is suing him, which set off, you know, several years of civil lawsuit proceedings. None of his assault or rape victims ever ended up in court. His former attorney, who he wrongfully terminated and sexually harassed, was the first one to get to court with him, and she won a huge settlement. She won a nearly $7 million settlement, and Bickle never paid that settlement, and that's why there's a warrant for his arrest. So the warrant is a bench warrant, which is part of how he's able to gallivant around certain corners of the world with zero repercussions. It's not something that uh, the U.S. is going to dispatch marshals to go collect him for. And so as long as he stays in India or Dubai or Mexico, his kind of favorite haunts, you know, nothing will happen to him. There's no impetus for extradition or anything of that nature. He then went ahead and last fall filed for bankruptcy, which, 
is maybe the saddest and most frustrating part of all of it. Um, you know, the bankruptcy is still in process, but, you know, generally speaking, bankruptcy is meant to resolve everything and it's meant to move quickly. And so, you know, I doubt this will move as quickly as many bankruptcies do just because it's Bikram and nothing with him ever goes as quickly or easily as it ought to. But essentially, you know, there's a very good chance that he exits bankruptcy. And when he exits bankruptcy, everything will be satisfied in quotes, you know, in terms of, you know, the bankruptcy court legally, uh, which would theoretically eradicate the issues that prompted the bench warrant hmm. which uh, so she would never means, she would never get that nearly seven million and any no. of the other accusers who have been forced to go through a civil trial instead of a criminal trial whose only recompenses money would not be able right. to seek that either Right. So at this point, five of the six women who have come forward have all settled out of court with him for really tiny sums through his insurance company. Uh, you know, I think it's they all have their, you know, reasons that they're not allowed to speak about on the record. But, you know, I think that at some point, years and years of trying to deal with him in court and knowing you're not going to get anything anyway because of the Mickey judgment uh, kind of wore them all down. There's one. The Mickey you know, judgment big, being the original the lawyer, what, the yeah. $7 million mm-hmm. settlement. Yeah. And, you know, the, yeah. The, so, I mean, essentially there is a CEO uh, and a CRO who's in place right now, and he is fighting to revitalize the company in order to generate new revenue. Um, you know, Part of what he, how he explains it to me is that ultimately ends up meaning that people who are owed by Bikram potentially see more, but enough, there's not a lot left uh, to liquidate and satisfy things. Um, But yeah, it it just feels like no one is going to get what they deserve and nothing's going to be fully satisfied in a meaningful way. And at the end of the day, it could potentially put in motion things that clear the warrant and then who knows i mean he could come back here so when it's a bench warrant there is no reason for anyone from the u.s to go find him the fact that we know that he's in mexico doing these two teacher trainings per year for nine weeks apiece doesn't mean that someone's going to go down there and make him pay or follow up on anything because technically without a criminal charge there's no reason to go chasing after him yes because the bench warrant is really you know i mean he the bench warrant is because there is a judgment and he didn't pay and he hasn't you know he skipped a lot of court dates and didn't file a lot of paperwork it's not it's not anything criminal it's all you know it's skipping court dates it's not paying a settlement it's not filing the proper paperwork in court cases it's all very it's you know it's not something that U.S. Marshals are going to go collect on. Which is just infuriating for uh, the women who are owed and also just anyone who's pursuing justice for what has happened. Do you? How much do you think it was the nature of the business that also afforded him the ability to sort of continue despite all of the rumors and, and all of the stories around him? Because it feels a bit like yoga and healing 
fall under that same tent of, of Larry Nasser, of medicine, of massage, of um, where lines are crossed between, you know, body and mind in a way that it's very hard for up and coming and young and innocent people to understand when a line is being crossed. Absolutely. I mean, you know, in his case, he had several things working in his favor to make this, you know, possible, if not inevitable, based on, you know, his the nature of who he is as a person. But, you know, he was revered as a guru. And just by virtue of being thought of as the person who had created this type of yoga and who was responsible for it and who these young women called their guru, he had, you know, he had such leeway to do whatever he wanted. Part of part of the obedience and the reverence that he demanded and that was afforded him was predicated on this notion that as guru, he could ask for anything. And it was, if you didn't like it, or if it hurt you, or if it was challenging, that was the point. And that being hurt or challenged or not liking it, but doing it anyway, was what was going to make you better and stronger. Mm. And, you know, like like Nasser and like, you know, anything involving, you know, doctors or physical practice, you know, once you bring the body into it and there's an opportunity for physical touch, you can so quickly gray lines and blur lines and make things, you know, make things uncomfortable. And and especially, you know, these people are good. They're predators. They're very good at reading people. Bikram is an incredible ability to read people and to know not only what they need in terms of an adjustment and a posture to improve their practice, but he can tell when someone is vulnerable. He's very good at telling who's vulnerable and who's not. And so when 400 people show up who are calling you guru, who are there to learn from you, he's going to be able to tell who among them are young enough and vulnerable enough and lack the life experience to know how to deal with him if he asks them to massage higher up and higher up and higher up until they're manually, you know, pleasuring him or who are not going to know what to do when they're in a room alone with him and he starts making advances or demanding sex from them. Um, you know, people are there are incredibly vulnerable. They're there to, they're there because they believe in something and they're trying to better themselves. And that makes the yoga, you know, teacher, student, student guru relationship incredibly fraught. And Bikram's not alone. Uh, there are a lot of yoga gurus who have done this. You know, in fact, the one of the historians I spoke to, you know, goes so far as to claim that essentially every Eastern guru who's come to America and made it big has crossed these lines. Um, you know, the I, the issue of abuse is is one that the yoga community at large is dealing with, and you know, Bikram is not the only scandal to break. Uh, he definitely is one of the biggest scandals. The scope and breadth of his abuse is definitely, um, pro- it's, you know, it stands out among yoga gurus. But this idea of gurus abusing students is uh, is actually, sadly, incredibly rampant. Is that just an abuse of a power that you've achieved when you're sort of held up to be 
almost greater than human in some in someone's life or is it somehow darkly and evilly believing that part of the journey is that control that can only be achieved by doing something that is is almost wrong or illegal you know i think it's I like think it almost feels a like little... a fraternity pledging. We're all a part yeah. of something that's so hard that when we escape out the other side, it feels like this great achievement. But did we all really have to do all of that? Couldn't we have gotten to the same end without stuff that goes beyond what should, anyone should be comfortable with? Yeah. I mean, that is so incredibly true of the Bikram community. Uh, you know, it, it feels... It feels like so much of what people go through at teacher training is, you know, it's extended and problematic hazing. But, you know, the ability to survive that hazing and then the membership of the yoga family that you get on the other side is that has been enough, you know, since he instituted these teacher trainings in 94 for people to keep going back and putting up with it. And I think that that sets up a scenario in which, you know, the person who's in charge amasses an an incredible amount of power and that power, you know, power corrupts very easily. And gurus, you know, especially self-appointed gurus like Bikram are human beings. You know, he's not a god. He's not even a genuine guru. And so once, and he's also a narcissist. And once he had that power, he really got drunk off that power and the nature of his person was to express and, and revel in that power and, you know, revel in his control by acting out sexually among members of his community. Yeah. It's especially fascinating with doctors or gurus or um, therapists, anyone who you presume the reason they got into their business was their desire to help people how that power can so corrupt them that they lose that connection to the helping side of themselves and it becomes about uh, their own pleasure or their own control. When you met Bikram himself, and that was obviously a big goal of, of the podcast of the series, was to go actually speak to him and discover what it was about him and and his charm and anything else, how he feels about the accusations. What was the result of finally coming face-to-face with him after all the work that you had done talking to those around him? It was uh, a very surreal and ultimately kind of heartbreaking and disappointing experience. I mean, I went, I'm, you know, I will admit that I think that sometimes I can be a little naive or maybe that's just, a. I think that's a piece of who I am when I'm reporting or telling a story, you know, like I want to believe that there is some sort of truth in every person and that, you know, I can find it. And so I definitely, you know, went to meet him thinking that or hoping that I would, I would see at least moments or glimmers of the person that people talked about, because there are a lot of people I did talk about that knew him, you know, in his early years and who did not, you know, see a monster and who really felt, transformed by a person and who felt that he was genuine and he wanted to help people. And, um, you know, I was nervous to meet him because I had obviously also 
talked to victims and read a lot of court cases and talked to a lot of people who had been in this world for a long time. And I knew exactly who he was and what he's capable of and what he's done. Uh, and when I met him, uh, he was kind of everything I expected and, and, but with none of the, none of the glimmers of humanity left. I mean, he would just, he felt like someone who was really far gone. He was just, and not he because was, of age. Not because of age. He was actually pretty vibrant uh, for, you know, a 70s, you know, something year old man. Um, you know, he's 74, 75 years old. He's, you know, he was in good shape and had a ton of energy and was very outgoing and animated. Uh, you know, we spent about three hours together. Over the course of that time, he became darker and darker. I mean, his eye by the end it's it's hard to explain but by the end i mean his eyes were just like dark and cloudy and there was something vacant and distant and disturbing um that had you know taken over and replaced that really kind of outgoing bright person that i first met when he first started talking to me but he just was on you know at times it was just almost pathetic the kind of like ego greatest hit stories about myself loop he was on um but we spent together the kind of darker got and the kind of the more angry and and discontented and you know he just he just got like he darker is kind of the only way i know how to explain it but he just he couldn't not talk about his legal problems and he couldn't not blame all of us in the u.s for what's happened and you know he was trying to get under my skin and to say things to bother me and he was just i just he was a very troubling presence to be around um i left feeling incredibly like unsettled and just really weirded out by having them with him yeah did you feel like it was at this point a mental health issue and that it may always have been or does it feel like having now studied him from the early years till now that he was essentially an everyday average guy who, by the gradual greater and greater accumulation of power and money and fame and reverence, lost his connection to his own humanity without it being a mental health issue so much as um, a weird disconnect? I, you know, I truly believe he has narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, you know, no one can, you know, no one will diagnose him without actually, you know, sitting down and examining him. But that said, you know, there's a list of attributes and you have to have like five on a list of nine and he has far more than five. Uh, it doesn't strike me as just a mental health issue. You know, it does feel very much like this is someone who was incredibly average, but who wanted great things and who was charismatic and was able to make things happen for himself. And then, you know, like you said, the power, he got drunk on that power and he gave into that need for the power and attention more and more and uh, let it take him to the darkest places it could. But it doesn't feel like, you know, even even now when you see him and it just feels like none of his humanity is left, it doesn't feel like it's because he's 
you know, suffering a mental illness. It just does feel like this is a person who is so driven by ego and who has used that ego and that desire for power to get whatever he wants, to do whatever he wants. And I don't think he really feels any remorse for any of it. Just a couple more, because I want to let you go. And I also really want people to go listen to the five podcast <laughs> segments and get all the, the, the really good details and reporting and information uh, that's in there. I just wonder, do you, why do you think people still support him? Is it, is it the, the cult like nature of once you've given yourself over to something that so greatly affects your life? Anything associated with it must be excused because it's too much to take that that thing could be ruined by by these accusations? I think that's a huge piece of it for a lot of people. I mean, I think he has a really powerful, he connects with people in a really powerful way. And so once someone feels like they've been touched by him or they've connected to him personally, it's really difficult, no matter what is presented to you, to let that thing go. Uh, and to accept, you know, what you're hearing about him. Um, you know, I do think that in an instance like this, where you're talking about a community that refers to itself as family, you know, once you go to teacher training, you're in the yoga family, you're always part of the yoga family, you can go to any Bikram studio around the world and, you know, practice for free because you're part of the family. And the term family is thrown around over and over again. And if that's, you know, the way that they start seeing themselves and thinking about themselves, you know, Bikram is very much the father in that case. And when you look at the way he committed these crimes and you look at the way his victims reacted and how they grappled and how this all came down, it really looks a lot like incest. And Mm. so I think that, you know, part of, part of what, keeps such a really strong population of people that to this day don't want to hear or believe the stories that the victims tell and who still believe in him and support him no matter what. You know, I think that a lot of that stems from the fact that this community really reacted like a family reacts when, you know, incest is made public. There's a there is a ton of shame. There's a ton of denial. There's a ton of, you know, wanting to, you know, circle the wagons and protect and hush and keep things quiet uh, that persists even now, you know, years after people started coming forward. Yeah, it actually reminds me, I had an audition in L.A. when I was trying to do some acting stuff and I didn't know the address and I got there and it was the Scientology Center in Hollywood. And I was sitting waiting for this like commercial audition and I picked up the pamphlet and the way it was written for someone like me who had a great family and a lot of friends and was very happy and very secure was uh, insulting almost. But I realized that it was reaching out to the loneliest of people who felt abandoned mm-hmm. by everyone around them. And that's what this feels like. And not that only people who were lonely or abandoned could feel that from him because he was so charming and charismatic, but that that is then where it becomes almost cult-like in, in, in the way that it means something to you that, that, uh, would be too much for it to be ruined by, by all of this. Um, well, I think the mm-hmm. podcast is incredible and I think listening to it, even if you aren't wholly invested in yoga is important because it so well elucidates how this can happen in other places too, because it starts from the beginning and takes you throughout the growth of this man's power. 
Um, and it really, I think, is useful for all of us as we are continuing to embrace the Me Too movement to understand how we get to a point where there's a Bill Cosby or a Larry Nassar or a Joe Paterno where we we simply can't imagine that idea of that person being sullied um, by by seeing it from the beginning and knowing how how it becomes that that powerful. It's really it's really good stuff and. Um, I look forward to whatever your next project is, however many months of research and time and interviews it will take before we before we get to hear it and and and, and enjoy it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jules. I really appreciate it. I look forward to uh hearing the rest of it. It's just really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is really this is an honor. It means a lot to do this with you. Oh, and another thing. On this week's That's What She Read, a really fascinating story from the Globe and Mail. And it's written by Michael Harris, who writes about forgetting how to read. And he doesn't mean literally. He doesn't know what words and letters are. He means that the way that we now consume in the age of constant crowded content, phones and computers, has changed the way we're able to consume books. That trying to read a lengthy and slow-moving and deliberate story was troublesome for him. He threw down the book and started watching Netflix. Or he tried to read something on his phone and found himself constantly swiping down to move it along faster to get to the point. And the way that our brains are changing and our synapses are changing by virtue of how we digest content is actually making it harder to go back to the old book. The, the thing that we grew up on and knew was the way to really learn something. And he talks to neuroscientists about how our brains change by staring at screens all day, how our synapses adapt to that, and also talks about the way we read. And here's a quick line uh, uh, about that. When we become cynical readers, when we read in the disjointed, goal-oriented way that online life encourages, we stop exercising our attention. We stop reading with a sense of faith that some larger purpose may be served. This doesn't mean we're reading less, not at all. In fact, we live in a text-gorged society in which the most fleeting thought is a thumb dash away from posterity. What's at stake is not whether we read, it's how we read. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.